I just started hearing inklings of shadow and what it, I didn't actually know what it meant, but I knew that it had a good outcome. When you integrate your shadow, you can be in a much more empowered position. And I just wanted that. I wanted the empowered position, okay. but I didn't know <laughs> I didn't want to do the shadow what work. I was going into. I do remember saying Shh, in the months after the trauma therapy that if I knew what I was embarking on, I definitely wouldn't have. I felt quite rattled and a little bit traumatized. Mm. Because, yeah, I just, I definitely wasn't prepared for the immensity of what I was about to reveal. I also knew by doing this, even though if I could go back, I probably would. At the same time, also, I knew it was such a blessing because it means I'm not going to have to do it later. Pete Isaiah is a trauma therapist and integration coach, supporting individuals and couples to become their most empowered and courageous, authentic selves. This podcast features inspiring conversations with graduates of Pete's shadow work courses and deep dives with experts in the arena of alternative health and current affairs. Here, we're not victims, we're volunteers. Are you in? So my guest on today's podcast episode is the amazing Quanika Davis, who is my brand director, collaborator, and business partner in all things Shadow. And we get into a 90-minute conversation to introduce myself to my audience. And so it's a bit about my story, my childhood, my birth, my early education, my tertiary education and work experience, my spiritual beliefs and how they developed, and also what we're up to together. Quinn came to me as a trauma client, interested in shadow work, and then became interested in what I'm doing, and then is now an integral part of Isaiah Coaching, bringing the message of shadow work uh, to the world. Enjoy the podcast. So, we're here doing a podcast today. The two of us, first time. All your other episodes so far have been with either a graduate of your course or an expert in the field of something alternative and taboo and intriguing. And so, I thought it would be a good idea to dive into a bit of your background and who you are and your story for anyone who's new to the podcast or just discovering Isaiah coaching and yeah just have a chat so people can kind of get to know who's behind this organization which is me and you <laughs> the two of us the here dynamic, we are such a dynamic team yes and yeah, just see where it goes. Uh, I know you've mentioned that um, you would like to, or you definitely operate better when you're being interviewed and asked questions. And so, where? So yeah, let's just let's just talk about who you are, rather why, than you just not? going solo. <laughs> we'll make it a dynamic dynamic convo. My partner thinks that talking about me is my favourite subject. Really? Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe maybe it is. We'll see. But, <laughs> yeah, okay, we will see. So, um... You got any questions there for me, Queen? Yeah, I've got some questions for you. I guess I... Let's just start with what your journey has been in how you got interested in shadow work and this whole 
path of self-discovery and authenticity and what really yeah led you to be in this field of work and I guess also just your maybe your life story a bit so just start with my life story yeah like that could take a while well (laughs) no I'm gonna I'm gonna give the abridged version yeah because I'm you know I'm not a spring chicken anymore so I'm gonna start at the beginning uh, with my birth because that was quite impactful and I want to speak about my birth um, in two contexts Uh, one the actual uh, my physical birth but then also my astrological birth so I will start with my astrological birth. So I was born in Perth, Western Australia at a certain time, 1961, 5th of August, uh, at 2.32pm. Now that doesn't mean much unless you're into astrology, which I am by the way. And I know that by saying that I'm into astrology, I'm possibly turning off half my audience or more. But you once said to me that in order to turn people on, you've got to be able to be willing to turn some people off. So I'm just going to share who I am. Uh, do well, I, if if anyone's turned off by the fact that you're passionate about astrology, they're not actually your upper audience. My, they're not my so audience. So they're just they've come to the wrong place. <laughs> they have. So um, I want to talk about ast- astrologically. So so I've been very influenced by Carl Jung, who kind of died the year I was born. Maybe I'm his reincarnation. I don't know. <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> humble. <laughs> very humble of me. <laughs> Uh, and he was the he's the father of depth psychology and the the man who came up with the concept of shadow so we'll get there eventually but but Carl Jung for people who don't know about him he was a professor of psychology and psychiatry I believe uh, and he would do the astrological charts of his patients before he saw them which I find quite intriguing and you know astrology used to be you know, a proper science like like astronomy. And it's only, you know, probably in the last 100 years or so that it's become this woo-woo kind of thing. But there are many people out there who see um, astrology as, as a valid science and I'm one of them. And so uh, why am I talking about my astrology? Well, um, I was born with my son in the eighth house. What does that mean? Well, the eighth house is the house of Scorpio and that's the house of the taboo the hidden, the mysterious, the occult, the shadow, psychology, death, sex, and these kind of subjects. So how did I get interested in it? I think it's in my blueprint. I think I was born interested in these subjects and these topics. So that's the astrological context of my birth. Now, the physical context, I was born blue and not breathing. Um, my mum's pretty vague around some of the details of it, but what makes the most sense to me, um, this comes from my nursing background, of course, is that in those days they didn't have epidurals for labour pain. They used to use pethidine, which is like morphine, it's an opiate. And so my mum would have had pethidine as, uh, uh, for pain control during labour. Now, pethidine crosses the placenta into the baby's bloodstream And that would have been an opiate overdose for me as a child being born. And opiate overdose causes suppression of the respiratory drive. In other words, it stops you breathing. That's how people die of opiate overdose. All the people who die of fentanyl overdose in the US at the moment die because they stop breathing. 
So I was born with dyspethidine in my system and couldn't breathe. I couldn't take my breath because that part of my brain was chemically shut down. So I was whisked away, blue and not breathing, and had to be resuscitated and spent I don't know how many days or uh, in a, what they call back then a humicrib, which is you know like a, a cubicle in which a, a, a newborn baby, um, it's like an intensive care um, bed for, a, for an infant, a neonate. So there was a bit of a break in the bonding with, with my mother. I don't know the significance of that. But I am, it, it's almost like I feel my birth in some way uh, was very impactful on the rest of my life. It, it, like life started out as a bit of a challenge. And, um, and so if I want to I fast forward about 58 years because I actually got to relive my birth, which sounds a bit, you know, phantasmagorical, but I was in um, Mexico City and I went over there to do a training um, and uh, to go to a conference in using the psychedelic compound 5-MeO-DMT. And so I was, after we did this week-long training, on the last day we did a holotropic breathwork session and maybe some of the audience don't know what that is, but holotropic breathwork is a process uh, invented by Stanislav Grof, who was a student of Jung. Uh, Stanislav Grof used to work with psychedelics with his patients, and then when psychedelics became illegal, he needed a way to invoke a non-ordinary state of consciousness without using psychedelics. So he created holotropic breathwork. And I'd done one or two sessions before my session in Mexico, so I knew what I was getting myself in for. Uh, holotropic breathwork is basically you lie down with a bunch of other people in a room and there's um, evocative music being played at a, quite a high volume and you're instructed to breathe in a way that um, you're uh, amplifying your uh, expiration of air and so you're basically hyperventilating. When you hyperventilate, you're blowing off a lot of carbon dioxide that makes your blood go alkaline and it, within about 10-15 minutes you lose control of yourself and you enter a non-ordinary state of consciousness in which there can be profound, deep, cathartic experience. And I had no idea what, what I was... I, I didn't go in with a particular intention. We just started this holotropic breathwork session and within 15 or 20 minutes I was that newborn infant stuck in suspended animation, hadn't taken its first breath, blue, paralysed, not alive but not dead. <laughs> you know, I had a heartbeat but I wasn't breathing. And I relived that and I went right back there. It wasn't like I was my adult self, I was this infant self and I gasped and took this huge big, and this primal scream of my first breath. And that was the most compelling moment of my life and you know I've done hundreds of journeys with psychedelics but reliving my birth just through breathing was by far the biggest um, experience of my life to date. So something about my birth being traumatic and my astrology being son in the eighth house set me up to be very curious about all things hidden, taboo and mysterious and shadowy wow so i have first question to go back to the um 
the painkiller that your mum received when she was giving birth. Do you think that means that that means that there must have been a lot of cases of babies being born in the same state as you? I, I don't. I, have, have you looked into it at all? I, I haven't looked into that. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm not the only one. Yeah, because it sounds pretty like a very powerful substance that they were using. Yeah, and I guess it depends on the dose and um, how close that dose is given to uh, delivery. Um, but, but this is the reason why they came up with epidurals. Mm. An epidural is a needle they put in your spine and it just numbs you from the waist down mm. so that you're not feeling the, the labour pains. Mm. But before they had that technology or know-how, they just used to give you opiates. Mm. So, um, yeah, I haven't looked into that and so I don't know how many other people, maybe some people listening to this had a similar experience. Yeah, I mean, if it sounds like that definitely could be likely and could also explain why a lot of the previous generations have a lot of unresolved trauma and stuff because, you know, birth trauma and um, um, trauma when you're in utero, mm. you know, that affects you for your whole life if you don't address it. And you had your rebirthing experience and your holotropic breath work, which, I mean, how did your life change after you had that experience? Yeah, I just want to go back one, one, and I'll come back to that because you just mentioned something about in utero trauma and birth trauma. Uh, there's four schools of psychology and the, the most recent school of psychology is the transpersonal school in which Stanislav Grof had a lot to do with. Prior to the fourth school of psychology, they didn't recognise birth trauma, in, in utero trauma, perinatal trauma, trauma after birth. Pretty much they saw you as just this blank slate that was incapable of experiencing trauma until you're about, you know, I don't know, six months old or something like that. And so thankfully, um, you know, we've come a long way since then and we recognise that, you know, not only can you have birth trauma or in utero trauma, but you can come in with intergenerational trauma. Mm. Um, so what was your – how has my life in, been impacted since I relived my birth was yeah, that the question yeah what did you notice shifted after that experience because you you said it was one of the most profound mm. experiences of your life and yeah talk about that a little bit yeah so yeah i've never really contemplated that before um in the moment it it was unmistakably reliving that experience like i'm 100 percent convinced of that uh, how did it impact me or change me well i just smoked five meo dmt every day for a week prior to that so what was impacting my life after that it would be hard for me to say whether it was the psychedelic i mean sometimes you just experience. need to lump it all together because yeah. i feel like for people who are on the okay so journey. so i guess the way i'd like to answer that is you don't have to use psychedelics to have a psychedelic experience and I think my birth and reliving my birth were psychedelic experiences. And I'm a bit different than most people that I've read or, or talked to around psychedelics. Most people th think that psychedelic means mind manifesting, psyche being mind and delia mean manifesting. This is incorrect and I've looked at the etymological root of the word psychedelic. Psyche isn't mind, it's actually soul. And delia means to reveal so psychedelics are not mind manifesting, they're soul revealing. So I had 
a week of psychedelics and then a psychedelic experience through my holotropic breath work. So the short answer to your question was my soul was revealed to me. And what does that mean? Well, what is the soul? That's like a whole other conversation. And I think Carl Jung and Stanislav Grof and, and even to some extent Jordan Peterson have uh, done a lot in terms of mapping the cartography of the soul. And for me, the soul is the non-physical aspect of me. And the soul for me contains the whole inner experience of what it is to be human and through that process of me going inwards and doing a lot of introspection and revealing my soul what I discovered was that there's at least two parts to my soul one is my persona or ego that who I think I am and how I present myself to the world but through doing doing psychedelics that mask came down and revealed what was behind that which is the shadow so you feel like your ego is part of your soul? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I believe I believe the soul is the whole conscious experience of being human. So do you see that there's a difference between soul and spirit? It's another great question. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really know how to answer that and I don't know if I'll do it justice. Uh, I see myself as a spirit a conscious entity, a being, a spirit, living in a physical material body, the ghost in the machine. And then where's the soul come into it? So the soul is, uh, I guess spirit, you you could look at spirit as being collective and then soul being individual. I, I believe that I have an individual soul, like my soul is, I think, probably different to your soul. But you could talk about spirit as that animating uh, part of the soul that 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 animates mm-hmm. the um, yeah I, I don't really know what this distinction is between spirit and soul I don't know how to articulate that well I mean you don't have to do it perfectly <laughs> but I just wanted to touch on that because sure. I feel like that might have come up for some people listening mm. and but I I'm, I find it very interesting that to hear that you see the ego as being part of the soul because I definitely don't see it like that okay. I see the ego very much as a manifestation of the mind mm-hmm. and obviously the soul our whole body and our mind and everything is an expression of the soul but with all these added layers of things that we've picked up that aren't necessarily the soul but yeah I definitely I definitely don't see it like that I could put you on the spot then and ask you to define what you think the soul is well I think the soul is I feel like it's the it's the source essence of that I guess some people would say, you know, we're all one and that's the it's like all drops in the ocean and that soul essence is that oneness that we are all expressions of. Okay, so you say and So I see the soul as the the pure un untouched expression of source alive in us and when we can can go beyond all the layers of our mind and our conditioning and all of these things that we've 
kind of taken on over lifetimes because I believe in reincarnation that but when we can get through all those and back to the soul that's when we connect with source and with God in its pure essence and that's connecting to the soul so so you see soul as the collective rather than the individual but it is also the individual yeah but yeah that's that's how I see it yeah Um, but I don't I definitely don't see the mind as I mean the ego as part of the soul okay Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, my, I'll just my experience with five meo DMT, which is the most powerful psychedelic. I've, I did that in Mexico City. I did the full dose, and and this helps me to understand who or what I am in relationship to the cosmic. And um, when you take a full dose of five meo DMT, and I'm not recommending people do this, by the way. There's a disclaimer there. Uh, you have an experience of unity consciousness, and what I mean by that is. And to put it into words, to best explain it, my experience was that there was ego death. So, Pete, no more Pete. And I guess the only way to understand it is from a yogic perspective in that the crown chakra at the top of the head opens and the drop of consciousness which animates my body, my spirit or my individual soul. So, for me, the soul is got something to do with consciousness so the drop of consciousness or spirit or soul in me went out through my crown chakra and went and reunited with the ocean of consciousness in the cosmic so the drop of consciousness leaves the ocean of consciousness and incarnates into the body and that's the individual soul separate a separate experience it feels separate from the ocean of consciousness and so um, the drop of consciousness resides in us and we have a conscious experience. I have a conscious experience of being Pete, but Pete's a construct that the ego is attached to. But when, I'm, when I identify myself as Pete, that's, a, that's the conscious agent experiencing itself in this body. When my consciousness left my body, it went to the ocean of consciousness and there was no me but there was pure consciousness and it was blissful. And for me, it felt like the absolute truth. And that was a 10 or 12 minute experience in earth time, but it felt like an eternity there. And then there was an experience of re-entering the body or the consciousness re-entering the body. And then the ego gets activated, you wake up and you're back in your body. Quite an impossible experience. And So then if, if you're saying that the ego got activated when you re-enter your body, is that not to say that the ego is separate from the soul that went back and connected to the oneness. So okay, so because how if that yeah. if they are the same, mm. then it would have gone. Wet. Oh no no no, ego is not the same as soul. Uh huh. I just think the, the the soul for me, you, you know, look, I I think that there could be a um, if you want to say that there's a collective soul and an individual soul, and there's a drop of soul coming from an ocean of soul. That makes sense. Like so. But I experience, my conscious experience is through a filter. I see the world through the filter of Pete and you see the world through the filter of Quinn. And I would call that filter the ego. Mm-hmm. At least that's, it's not all of who you are, but it's how you, how you relate to the world. You relate to it as Quinn and all your memories and all your ideas and beliefs and experiences and, you know, these... Um, they've mapped the brain 
fairly well with functional MRI and they know that most of this concept of self or ego or identity is in the default mode network which are various regions of the brain that are joined by you know neural pathways and they they speculate i don't know if they've proven this but that the 5-MeO-DMT molecule uh, deactivates the default mode network so in other words your concept of self gets dialed down it goes offline so no filter no filter of self through which to perceive the world and so if you talk to people who have done 5-MeO-DMT, they'll say it's complete ego death. So with the ego offline, for some reason, there's no sense of self, and I don't know why or how, but through when there's ego death, there's no longer a subject having an objective experience. And so the consciousness is no longer in the body connected to the ego, it's it's back to, back to the ocean of consciousness, mm. and so yeah. So you know, interesting. Like you started this off by saying, you know, we we're going to dive into who I am. <laughs> well, I actually was just thinking later in my list of questions, um, I've written down to talk about your um, beliefs around God. Okay. So I feel like we've kind of segued into that direction. So if you want to keep going, mm. and we can just dive right into that strong start um yeah okay yeah i'm happy to go to the the god question um there's no easy answer to the god question of course and nobody could say for sure whether there's a god or not we have to you know come to our own conclusions or ways of thinking about that or um i've always been spiritually inclined um do you have any memories of being a kid or being younger before you really had like an understanding of... Yeah, I think my earliest memory of, um, I guess, the closest thing to a spiritual experience was um, probably around five or six years of age. It was, I was walking to school and um, I was with my two older brothers and I think I was in grade one, first, first year... And I saw a dog on the street and I said to my brothers, um, when we get up to the next corner, that dog's going to cross the road and it's going to get hit, hit by a car. And so I had this premonition and, th- and then that, that happened. And I was a bit struck by that. It must and have been a bit traumatic for you at a young I, age. I thought maybe I'd caused it or something. It, it was a bit full on and I don't know why I saw that moment before it happened or if I did. Uh, th- and then it was... Probably the same year even, uh, I was in the car with my mum and again my, my two older brothers and we were driving on the highway and I said to my mum, mum when we get up to this roundabout we're going to be sideswiped by a truck but we're going to be okay and we were sideswiped by a truck at the roundabout and we were okay and you know I remember my mum kind of you know giving me like a death stare and <laughs> you know, a bit of a shock in the car and almost again like I'd somehow caused it. And there was a conversation shortly after that about that because they'd known about the dog thing as well. And I remember being that part of me being shut down by by my parents and even my brothers, like stop saying negative shit or you're making stuff happen that's bad. So something like that happened. And so I, I suppressed that, whatever was going on there, I just thought I'm not going to do that anymore. Do you feel like you've reconnected to it since or it's still dormant? It's just changed. I think it's changed. 
Um, I was born into a Catholic household. Um, my grandparents actually had two uh, private audiences with Pope John Paul VI. Now, I don't know how you get to have a private audience with the Pope. It wouldn't be easy. But they donated a lot of money to the church. And I've seen photos of them, so it's true. And they're very Catholic. And they even had a tabernacle in the living room. So a tabernacle is this vessel in which the Eucharist, the body of Christ, is kept inside the church. And they had one in their room. And they had letters from the Pope inside that. And there was their house was more like a cathedral than, than a home. And they went to church every morning. My father still goes to church every morning. So that was your grandparents? My grandparents, my, my dad's parents. My father's is 87, still goes to church every day. So I grew up in a very Catholic um, household. Do you feel like you had a lot to unpack from that experience? Sure. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, interesting to, obviously there's so much that is um, quite publicly known now about the dealings of the Catholic Church and the Pope and especially mm. with boys and men. Mm. And, you know, that energy must have whether or not you were aware or s- around it, like that would have been coming through and affecting you as a young boy. Yeah, look, I, you know, I went to an um, all-boys Catholic college. There was no girls in, in my high school and, and some of these Christian brothers were pretty sadistic. Mm. Like I was belted, punched, slapped, kicked. Mm. I'm not sure what they were trying to teach me, but they were certainly quite violent and s- sadistic in their, you know, Seems very moral. Disciplinary. Oh, yeah, it was very right and wrong. High, high level morality. Oh, yeah, but not, but, but not necessarily, but not necessarily practicing what they preach. No. And, and, and my brother was sexually molested. One of my brothers was sexually molested by uh, one of the Christian brothers at that school. I won't name names or schools, but you know, you know, it's it's come out since then. And yes, um, it's a mess. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess, and so. So I remember at uh, his school, when I was, this was a grade seven, so I was probably about 12 years of age, and the priest uh, from the school chaplain came into the class and, you know, there's 30 boys in the class and he comes in and we all thought he was a bit creepy, but he, he's at the front of the class he had this conversation about, are there any boys here thinking about having a vocation um, of being a, either a Christian brother or a priest? We're only 12 years old. And, um, you know, there was crickets. You, you could have heard a pin drop. And he's like, oh, come on, some of you must have thought about it. Mm, silence. Then he goes, even for a fleeting moment, have any of you ever thought about a life in the religious order? And foolishly I thought, well, I think I did have a fleeting thought once. So I stuck my <laughs> hand up. He goes, right, Isaiah, come with me. <laughs> so I was the only kid in the class to put my hand up. And... um off we went to, I forget the, what they call the room where, where the priest lives. But I sat in his room and he started having a conversation about how lucky I was to, f- to have received this calling from God himself and that how happy my family were going to be and my grandparents that I'd been picked out out of all the kids for this special assignment of, of a life of you know s- spiritual servitude. And I listened to him for about 40, 45 minutes or so and he's really selling it. And then... He, he said, do you have any questions, Pete, before, you know, we take you off for your training? <laughs> and I said, look, the only question that comes to mind, Father, is this thing around sex. Is it true that if uh, I become a priest that I won't be able to have sex? He goes, yes. He says, you'll actually be, you know, be married to Christ and so you'll forego 
section, you'll live a celibate life. But not in the shadows. <laughs> Behind closed doors, like anything goes, really, and especially with young kids. But we won't talk about that. We're not going to talk about it. We'll just we'll just keep it all light on the on the forefront. That's some shadowy stuff. Yeah, we'll do a whole podcast on that sometime. So yeah, the idea of living a celibate life wasn't for me. Not with the sun in the eighth house, and you're interested in all things sexuality and so forth. And so yeah, so but but it was interesting that there was something still a appealing to me about this fascination with the spiritual you know and i didn't know any other way at that time other than catholicism um i remember going to church and in the catholic church you eat the body of christ and drink his blood it's really a bit of bread wafer and some wine but it's consecrated into that symbolically and ritualistically and and the idea was and i was told this and i was quite receptive as a kid and I just believed what I was told. And they said, well, when you take the body of Christ, go lie down, close your eyes and ask for God to show himself to you. So I spent 17 years doing that, you know. Taking Did God ever show himself no, to you? No, no, never. Mm. No. And so then I, I spent 15 years in yoga and meditation, uh, doing kundalini yoga uh, and kriya yoga. And I went to India and sat in an ashram for six months. And I really wanted to have an experience and a vision of God. And still no. Still no. <laughs> no, I'm like, okay. So then um, I was probably in my 40s when the psychedelic thing uh, you know, entered my life and through my older brother who mentioned this word ayahuasca. I'm like, ayahuasca, what's that? I never heard of it. So I looked it up and did some research on it and it's this thing that you know opens up the spirit realms. So I'm like, okay, that's for me. So I went off and did my first ayahuasca ceremony and drank my first cup and within about 45 minutes, there it is. The spirit realm in all its glory, mm. undeniable, you know, complete access to the spirit realm, whatever that spirit realm is. Is it my imagination? Is there a realm of spirituality? But it was the aha moment for me. And So do you believe that there is a spirit realm or it is your imagination? It's a great question. So I think it's – so what, what is the human imagination and what, what's its relationship to soul? So – where does God and devil come from? Do animals have God and the devil? No, I think God and the devil are probably human phenomena. And so God and devil, I believe God and devil, are creations of the human imagination. But I'm not sure who's creating that, whether it's us, the individual, creating that, or is there a creator creating that through our imagination? So who knows? But if I think of where do God and the devil come from, do they exist out there in the physical realm or in another dimension? Again, who knows? But what I can say for sure is that humans certainly have invented with their imagination these archetypes of God and devils. And I think the reason we've done that is to help explain some of our holy and unholy behaviour. So do you, when you see, when you think, think about god and the devil do you see them personified uh not really okay no i i don't i don't see them as uh i don't personified like as 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 a person no even when i had my so my, my closest experience to connection to god was when i did the 5meo dmt and i left my body and i became one with you know all or consciousness and there was no god there 
Well, that's not totally true. Everything was there. God and the devil, good and bad, right and wrong, up and down, peace and war. But it was there in unity. It wasn't there in duality. There was no polarity. There was, there was nothing wrong. It was all in this cosmic dance that was blissful and true. Um, but I couldn't see the personification or deification of God or the devil. Mm. So I think, I think the reason we may personify God and the devil is again, like what I was saying, to help us understand our devilish behaviour and our godlike behaviour, mm. which I'm convinced that we're all capable of. And so maybe we've personified them and created these archetypes to help us explain our own condition. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that there's not an om- omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent creator. I just don't relate to it quite that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the way Jordan Peterson put it when he was asked, does he believe in God? And he says, I don't know what you mean by belief. And he said, I act as though there is a God. And he even thinks that even atheists act as though there is a God. And so just recently, actually, I my life has become quite busy in a way and quite mental. And um, I've dropped off on my spiritual practice and I've been running my business and my company for a while now. And I felt like I was losing touch with my spiritual practice. And it felt to me like I was out in the desert all on my own and there's just me and my ego and it's all about me and what I'm wanting and what I'm wanting to do. And there was no connection to something bigger than myself. Like it became very material and three-dimensional, earthly. Mundane, Mm. nothing sacred about it. And and I realised that what was missing for me was connection back to the divine. And I usually experience that through some sort of spiritual practice. I went from 15 years of yoga to 15 years of psychedelic. And I'm actually thinking of going back to some of my yogic spiritual practices because when I did those, although I didn't see anything, because I'm quite visual, I always want to see it in order to believe it, it when, I, when I did my yogic spiritual practices, when I felt the, the most at home in my body, when I felt good in my skin, and when I felt deep connection to self and other, which is, I guess, a spiritual experience. So, yeah, I think I'm going to – not I think I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to re Well, you already are. You've, you've told me about practices. some morning spiritual practices yes. you've been doing lately, your yeah. toning, your vocal toning and your Kriya Yoga practice. Mm. Um, yeah, wow. Okay, cool. Well, I feel like we covered a lot with that. Definitely gave, gave the listeners some insight into the way that you see spirituality and – life and duality and some of your psychedelic experiences and so you didn't talk about your experience working or well your work experience your past of working at the rehab facility and maximum security prisons and what you learned from there I feel like that could be really valuable to share about okay I'll go through my work history from my first job to my last but I'll do it. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm gonna just do, I'm gonna do just it focus on the ones that you feel are relevant to what you're doing now. Okay. My first job, I worked in a fruit and veggie store bagging potatoes for 80 cents an hour and I was 14. I went to university for about 10 years. I did an accounting degree 
Um, I know. Was that a was that a you choice or a family? No, choice? My, my father. We needed. A, I can feel that. Yeah, we needed an accountant for the family business. <laughs> I, I, for some reason, I was good with numbers, and that was enough to get me into a, a university accounting. Uh, bachelor degree but I I never finished that um I have a habit of not finishing things I used to have a habit of not finishing things I I was one unit short of a bachelor degree but I I hated that study I was doing it for my father and um I actually wrote a um piece yesterday a blog about being a people pleaser and so I've recently dispelled that part of me now I do things for me not for recently dispelled it yeah like three days ago (laughs) But just a new layer. You didn't realize it was still more, right? You thought you'd <laughs> you thought you'd gotten that one long ago, but it just keeps revealing itself, doesn't it? There's always more. Yeah, <laughs> deeper layers. So uh, you're really you're. There's still more. There's still more. There's Even always though more. you've just gotten it three days ago, there's still going to be more. Uh, more people pleasing. I don't yeah. need to be much more people pleasing. Oh, really? If you catch me people pleasing, let me know. But like you know, you however many years ago when you got into all of this coaching and self discovery stuff and mm. kind of restructuring your persona and the way you show up, you probably would have thought that you got rid of people pleasing, right? <laughs> like you would have definitely done work oh, on okay, people yeah, pleasing. I, I, and you I, would have believed that, like, I hear what you're that's saying. Done. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I would have thought that I'd, you know, banished that um, beast from from me. Mm-hmm. So I've just got it at a, at a deeper layer. And there's. And no, there may I'm be just deeper layers. There may still be a deeper layer. I may be trying to please you right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just I I feel like it really is true that there's always more layers. Yeah. And I guess yeah, that's a real testament to it because even someone like you who teaches this stuff mm. and would have yeah very much so yeah, right. believed like I'm done with people pleasing. I've got that one undercover. Still, it'll emerge in a new subtle way. Anytime I think I've completed my shadow work i'm deluding myself <laughs> anytime you think you have you know that you're lying yeah correct oh, okay there he is again <laughs> tricking himself <laughs> so th- um my second degree was uh, a degree in applied science as, as and i did uh, came out with that as a registered nurse um which that is, one, was that a you choice uh, so the reason i chose well kind of it was kind of a choice me and my older brother made at the same time so i had a restaurant i used to have a mexican restaurant um and we owned that and it did quite well but then we sold out and my brother and i who were partners in that restaurant were sitting at home one day and he's i see him doing i'm like what are you doing he says i'm enrolling into nursing school i'm like you like if you knew my brother you wouldn't want to be nursed by him sorry about that phil um i'm sure his patients love being nursing nursed by him but he didn't seem like the type He's real masculine, he's a builder, you know, he's, he didn't seem the nursing type. Anyway, I said, why are you going into nursing school? He goes, dude, he goes, what a great way to meet women. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so I thought, he's right. No. Yeah, so I haven't told you this story before. So, so the two of us enrolled in nursing school together. He picked up a few ladies along the way and after about the first semester he dropped, oh, dropped so out. Oh, so in the, in the training was a great way to w- meet women, yes. not as a nurse. No, Oh, Queen. I was I was concerned. <laughs> I was concerned. No, and in nursing school. Okay, in nursing be, school. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and male nurses about one in ten. So 90% of nurses are women. So it's not a typical um, career for a man. Uh, I, so I, I started nursing school with my brother um, because I thought, like him, it might be a good way to meet ladies. 
and um, I did meet a lady on the la- I asked the lady out on the last day of a three year degree. <laughs> so How'd that t- go? It took me fine. Yeah, it went great. But but I discovered that once I started nursing, I was actually kind of interested in health and mm. you know anatomy and biology and pharmacology and neurophysiology and and uh, I am a people person by nature and so and I think I'm quite empathic and caring and it's just my temperament and so uh, yeah I I continued nursing I finished that course and nursed for thirty years <laughs> so. Um, Probably 10 years too long, actually. I probably should have got out earlier, but I don't know. No regrets. Um, so So then where did that take you? Well, to Los Angeles. I, I, I worked at UCLA in the emergency department there for about 10 years. Um, and so, yeah, nursing was great. I, I actually didn't mind it at all. Um, I used it to travel. I went to Cocos Islands and Christmas Island and uh, into you know remote indigenous communities in Australia. In my, in my nursing career, I I was always attracted to the settings where there was a lot of chaos and, and trauma. So I worked uh, in like I said, emergency rooms, mental health, psychiatric intensive care, remote indigenous communities, detention centres, prisons, drug and alcohol rehab centres. So pretty much, I think I was looking to put order into chaotic settings. Do you think that was your way of kind of like something that had come from your childhood and being in somewhat of a chaotic environment as a child and wanting to put order to that now as an adult? Absolutely. In a way that you could control? Yeah, so we talked about my birth, but we didn't talk much about my childhood. What what um, is compelling about my childhood, at least from my point of view, is that, um, it was pretty hectic for me as a kid. Uh, my father was a liquor salesman, so his job was to sell alcohol to pubs and bottle shops, but mostly hotels. And he spent, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five, drinking alcohol, you know, with publicans trying to sell them his products. And so he was drunk on a daily basis. And he still has a bottle of wine every day, probably when he comes home from church. Hi, Dad, if you're listening. And so um, he, there were seven of us, and my mum drank heavily for about three years, although she's sober now. So there was a lot of alcohol and that led to violence. So mum and dad were both pretty heavy-handed in the way they dished out the discipline. Um, leather belts and sticks and, you know, whatever, you know, was involved. And, and I, I copped some, you know, I remember copping some, some beltings, pretty severe ones from both my mum and my dad. And so did my siblings. And um, so there was a lot of violence and chaos. And it was a lonely, scary... I used to run... You also had like eight siblings? Uh, there was seven, uh, six, six siblings, so seven of us. Seven including you. Yeah. yeah. And you know, my, some of my siblings say that I copped at the worst. For some reason, they think my dad picked on me more than the others. Um, although I think you know, we all got it pretty bad. And, uh, you know, my relationship with my dad now is fine. Like, I've done a lot of healing. There's been a lot of forgiveness around that. But I certainly don't forget it. And it's definitely been impactful. So I see my childhood as one that was full of pain, suffering, fear, um, sadness, chaos. Yeah. Uh, Most kids, I imagine, when their dad comes home from work, run to greet him. I would run and hide under the bed. That's that's the truth. Um, So... That impacted me in a way that I, you know, I had complex PTSD from my childhood and I, I've healed that using MDMA therapy, you know. 
um, which I'm grateful for that 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 um, that's around and that that therapy actually exists. It's a really powerful way of healing trauma. So yeah, so my my fascination with work settings that had chaos was definitely shaped by my childhood. And I remember one day I'll share this story. So. I was probably about eight years old. It was summer, so I was just wearing shorts, no shirt or anything. I don't remember what I did. I could never really ever remember why the beltings came. I couldn't relate them to any particular behaviour. I don't remember being bad or naughty and that's why I got belted. I just One minute I was playing and the next minute I was getting belted. So my mum had come out and I was on the veranda and she had me up against the wall with a leather, leather belt and she just starts wailing into me. And at one point I could see she kind of lost it she went into like a white rage and I remember looking up at her and you know as the belts you know landing on my bare chest and back and it was hurting of course and I looked up and I saw her I saw her eyes roll back in her her head and it's just the whites of her eyes I'm like oh she's gone and and at that moment I dissociated as well so I left my body and by that I mean I could no longer feel the beltings she was still waiting on me, but I couldn't feel it. And I was in this like mo- moment where time stood still, and I'm looking up. I'm like, "Where's my mum gone?" But the other question was, "Why do people do the things they do?" I remember thinking that, like, "What's what's behind this behaviour?" And that question's been driving me ever since, mm. and still drives me to this day. It's the one fundamental question I feel that I'm here to to answer: is why do people do the things they do? And so I was really pleased in, in the nursing program when there were six behavioural, uh, human behavioural psychology subjects and that got me really interested in psychology and I read, I read a lot of psychology books and it's interesting now because as a trauma therapist I actually get psychologists and psychiatrists coming to see me to help them with their mental health. Yeah, well, that's definitely something that I'm always really intrigued by when you share that you've got either clients coming to see you who have seen therapists, counsellors, all types of conventional therapy um, practitioners and they come to you because they haven't managed to get results and then they have a breakthrough with you in like three sessions and they say to you, wow, that this is incredible. I didn't think this was possible for me this is amazing and then same thing when you have you know you have therapists and psych um psychologists and psychiatrists coming to see you to support them which is it's amazing because you've obviously got something that they don't have and that they they're not offering to their clients and isn't in their training something that you're doing is working and so yeah talk about a bit about that okay happy to go there um, I guess there's two questions. So it's mm. why do you think – why do you think um, – what is it that you have that these other practitioners don't offer? And, yeah, what, what, what is creating those results? Great questions. Let's uh, unpack that a little. Well, what do I have? I, I've got lived experience. Mm. Um, you can go get a degree in – clinical psychology and set up a practice and doesn't mean you're going to be good at what you do you, you may be but it's not guaranteed 
And if you don't have any lived experience to draw on, you're not going to have a deep understanding and empathy with what the client's been through. So, but then I haven't experienced, I've never been raped, I've never been in war, you know, I haven't experienced a lot of what my clients come to me with either. But it's something to do with having experience. It's more than that though. Um, in, when I was 24, I was in group psychotherapy for myself to overcome, you know, I had trauma, so I needed therapy uh, and it was group therapy, so there was 22 people and two clinical psychologists. I was the youngest by about 10 years, and they were going to put me in the youth group, but then they thought, nah, there's something about you, we'll put you in the adult group. So I was in the adult group, and interesting phenomena, mm, quite often during group therapy, when uh, one of the people in the group was having a particularly difficult time, and the psychologists were stuck, they turned to me, and said, Pete, what do you think's going on with this person? <laughs> this is a strange wow. phenomenon, but it, it, it was real, it's true. And I'd say, oh, they're just really angry at their mother. And, you know, and then they'd explore that and that would be the case and the person would have a bit of a breakthrough. And, and then, um, you know, they might say, oh, what's going on with this guy? And uh, he just needs to talk to his ex and, you know, apologise or whatever. You know. So it was several times, it was often enough to be a thing that whenever they were stuck, they would consult me, the youngest, and probably at that point, you know, not the most educated person in the room. And so... We've been through this because it's not about no. your intellect and your education. Mm. It's about just yeah. what you've experienced and what you can tap into within yourself. So, so it's, it's, it's like when mum was... Remember I said I looked up at my mum when I was eight years old and I asked the question, what is it that makes people do the things they do. That was my inquiry since I was eight. And, you know, um, I needed to know how people feel in order to be safe. Because if my dad wasn't happy or my mum wasn't happy, I wasn't safe. It was a survival mechanism that I developed. But then I've got six siblings that probably developed different survival mechanisms. and Or maybe it's something about my temperament or personality that I was born with and that I came in with. But I, I believe I have some sort of faculty at an elite level, to be able to look behind the surface of things and read into what's going on with the person psychologically and emotionally that's causing him to behave a certain way. So I peer beyond the superficial and the surface and I look deeper, and hoping to understand and get right what's the, what's the motivating thing going on here. So it's almost like you're, you're seeing, you can see their shadow or their blind spot and what they're unconscious of that's driving, like which beliefs or memories or something that's going on in them is driving the actions and the outcomes in their life. And then, but you don't tell them that, you just ask them the right questions to be able to figure those things out for themselves. Because you can see it, you know how to guide them to get there on their own. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a good, I, I never tell people what I think's going on with them. I only ask them questions to see if they can discover the truth for themselves about what might be going on. I'm not always accurate and correct. Um, sometimes I'm not, but mostly I, I feel that I am. Uh, I, I, here's another interesting thing. I remember during those group therapy sessions that when the person doing the work had their breakthrough and their healing moment when they identified what was going on underneath – 
and had their cathartic emotional experience and their healing moment, that was when also I would have these moments of feeling connected to spirit and uh, to the divine. Like it was palpable. Something in me just, it was like peace on earth. A momentary experience of peace on earth, at least on a micro level, in that room for that person. And so... Yeah, there's, there's something in me where I'm just looking to bring order to chaos and, and peace to conflict, and I'm not a big fan of conflict. Um, I grew up with a lot of it. and But you um, definitely don't shy away from it. I No, I used to, but I, that doesn't get you anywhere. No. <laughs> now, I, now I face it head on. Because that's really the only way to avoid it in some ways, in like a not to avoid it, but to minimise conflict and tension and to create more peace and harmony is to just address things head on in a way with skills and with diplomacy which is basically what you teach yeah if you walk away from conflict it's just going to get worse you're not going to get better and then you're going to have more conflict in your life which is the opposite of what you're trying to achieve by avoiding it yes and and the thing is unless you're taught conflict resolution and confrontation by your parents or teachers or somebody then you're not going to have those skills Mm. And if you don't feel skilled in that and someone else has got more skills in that, then you're going to avoid conflict and confrontation. It's pretty common. A lot of my clients come to me and have issues with being assertive and you know, resolving conflict and you know, avoiding confrontation. So I teach them the skills, uh, which I've had to learn myself, and then you get better at confrontation to where people stop messing with you because they just sense that you're okay with conflict and confrontation. Yeah, I definitely feel that is an increasing uh, reality in my life. As I do get more comfortable with um, communicating and having uncomfortable conversations and leaning into not necessarily conflict, but I guess some level of confrontation. Yeah, it's just, it's it's definitely... um, It's an empowering place to be. But I also do notice, this is a bit of a tangent, but (laughs) we'll see how it goes. Um, I also do notice because I feel like, especially um, considering my age and the age of the other people that I'm around, the fact that I communicate in the way that I do, which is quite direct and I feel quite confident in my way of... um, addressing things I notice that I tend there tends to be like quite a power imbalance because not a power imbalance but it'll almost fall into this dynamic of like um I notice that people tend to just kind of go into like a bit of a victim thing and get just quite emotional and I'm I'm always so confused because I'm there and I feel like I'm communicating so clearly in such a neutral way but the fact that I am so neutral and so direct and so assertive in what works and what doesn't work for me it's almost like I'm um like insensitive or unempathetic or like not caring about their position because I'm not going into this back and forth emotional thing that I guess in our culture kind of shows that you're invested and that you care. Whereas, yeah, I'm just kind of there and I'm not, I'm not interested in going into a back and forth. 
I'm getting to know more and more what works for me and what doesn't. So it doesn't really need to be a discussion because I can just say, this is where I'm at. Now you let me know where you're at. People don't really like that a lot of the time. It's, it's an interesting thing that I'm noticing and just having to be okay with that and kind of just, you know, that is what it is. And I feel, I feel um, secure in the way that I'm presenting. Yeah. And yeah, I imagine, um, you know, you're, you're an outlier, what I'd call an outlier. You don't fit snugly under the bell curve. You either, for yeah, sure. yeah, and you probably experienced that yourself, and and that's certainly my perception of you. Um, like, I wouldn't say I'm intimidated by you, <laughs> but I certainly feel that uh, you're a match for me. It's at least you know, kind of where in 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 your ability to stand for yourself and be assertive and present yourself and and show up and um, in your intellect and your mind and and just how you carry yourself as a person. And, you know, you're a third my age almost, you know. And so so I imagine, I don't know if it's an age thing with you, and it's just a number in one respect, but I imagine people your age would find you a bit unique and different. And <laughs> a I'm, bit I, unique and different. And I imagine, it, I, imagine a lot of them, I imagine a lot of them would be intimidated by you. And what, what may have them being intimidated is that it's just their own challenges, I would say, and that most of us have a wounded child in us, and maybe you have one of those too. I don't know, but I we certainly do. Yeah, and so, so whenever, whenever you're being confident, showing up, present, Quinn, adult Quinn, you're quite a force to be reckoned with, and 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 who you are in that person is, um, yeah, very clear and direct. And someone who's unsure of themselves, lacking in confidence. Um, got a wounded child that hasn't really had any love, nurturing, therapy or whatever, healing, uh, is going to possibly be triggered. So some part of them is going to be triggered and then they'll project what's not okay in them onto you mm. and so you're going to be that screen that people get to project on a lot. I, I feel that and it's, I mean, yeah, it definitely helps, I think, you know, working with you So in a... Um, like a partnership relationship, not as a client. Working with you on Isaiah coaching and just being around you and working on all of this shadow integration and coaching stuff all the time has definitely, just by being around it, like it's a constant um, education and a constant, um, yeah, I'm just taking in so much all the time and gaining so many skills and really I feel like, I'm really integrating it into my way of showing up and being rather than, I mean, obviously this is a rare thing that not everyone can have, but rather than just doing some sessions with you, like being around you every week for a year now, it's amazing how like the subtleties and all of the, little micro skills and ways of ways of being have really just landed and mm. yeah I feel I feel really I was reflecting on it a few weeks ago obviously so much is changing all the time for me because I am at such a fertile growth age mm. but and so many other things that would also contribute to where I am today but compared to before I started working with you 
I feel like I've just, I've really anchored in a, yeah, like a clarity and a security in how I am Mm. and how, yeah, how I show up. Are you comfortable with who you are and how you show up? I can be. Yeah. (laughs) Not always. Yeah. (laughs) But I can be. And so, so... Uh, for those who don't know, Quinn's my brand director and uh, we are working on, on our company together, our enterprise, and um, you, I see you as an equal team player and part of what we're creating together and deeply grateful for all of that. Uh, you came to me, I think, as a 20-year-old for trauma, maybe 19, I don't know, 20, uh, for a trauma therapy session. And when I asked you what your intention was, you said, I want to integrate my shadow. I will never forget that. Now, uh who says that at that I don't age? even know. I don't know. Oh, I actually right. don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> okay. Because I didn't know what that meant. Okay. I, I just started hearing inklings of shadow and what it, I didn't actually know what it meant. Mm-hmm. But I knew that it had a good outcome. When you integrate your shadow, you can be in a much more empowered position. And I just wanted that. I wanted the empowered position, okay. but I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't want to do the shadow. What work. I was going into, and mm. okay, so I opened a box that I I wasn't ready to open, but I obviously was on some level, or I don't mm. think it would have happened. Mm. Um, I do remember saying shh, in the months after the trauma therapy that if I knew what I was embarking on, I definitely wouldn't have. Okay, and I I felt quite rattled and a little bit traumatized Mm. Um, because yeah I just I definitely wasn't prepared for the immensity of what I was about to reveal and because I wasn't prepared I also didn't have the support and the infrastructure in my life to help me integrate that effectively Mm. so it was a bit more of like a drawn out messy destabilized process than it could have been look without knowing it at the time, just reflecting on what you're saying now, in some ways we uh, involuntarily and unknowingly, we were experimenting because, and I'm just thinking about this from from my perspective of shadow, because I think that in maybe our first 25, 30, 35 years, we're creating our ego and our persona. And it's only when we have a midlife crisis that we become interested or not everyone does but some people become interested in the hidden or the shadow aspects of their personality so maybe in some way and i've always wondered this anyway and and i think you're a fine example of this is what would it be to raise a child with some sort of awareness of the shadow from from the get-go so that as the child is developing their ego they and their persona they also are aware that they're also developing their shadow at the same time, which is kind of a, the unique position that you've been in because, you know, most people your age are really, you know, down at the gym puffing their bodies up and, you know, um, just trying to be the best version of themselves to sell themselves in the marketplace or, you know, whether that's the work marketplace or the relationship marketplace and really pumping up their ego and developing this sense of self, mm-hmm. whereas... You know, you've jumped in pretty early and embraced this shadow conversation about, well, no, I'm not just going to focus on the superficial and the external. I, I want to do a deep dive into the hidden parts of self. And so, look, I'm, I didn't realise that that's what was going on until just now, but if I look at that in perspective, that's quite a unique thing. And so my, my, what's coming up for me as a question is, can you 
unpack it for me in terms of benefit and cost. <laughs> so my experience? Yeah, okay. of, of being introduced to shadow work at a young age. Can you see benefits and can you see costs? And if so, what are they? It's hard to know what the costs are because I don't know what it would have been like otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's it definitely... Um, I mean, it's... Yeah, I, I relate to what you said about how this is something that people wouldn't usually do until midlife. And it makes sense that I only really relate to people that are 30, 40 plus because I'm, yeah, in many ways, I'm on quite a similar internal journey as people that are in that age bracket, which it's it's great because I, you know, I do relate to them and I can find community, but it's also... I do find that I, you know, there's things about other people my age that I'm obviously not going to relate to in the 30, 40 year olds, but I don't really relate to people my age in a lot of ways. So I'm kind of in this middle Mm. ground where I'm like, I get a bit from these people and a bit from these people, but I can't really put it together. So I I have quite a few individual friends that are quite solid but I really feel like I'm lacking like a tribe or community because there's not really like a group that I fit into that I've found yet because I am such a, I don't even, I'm just on a very unique path. You are. And so I find, but you know, I don't know if that would have been different anyway, because like that's still, I'm still just a very unique person. So even if I didn't do the shadow integration, I probably still would be here in a different way. And it would be a different version of this maybe, but I would still be on a very unique individual path. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I remember when I was feeling like, oh, wow, if I knew what that was going to be like, I probably wouldn't have done it. Mm. I also knew that by doing this, even though if I could go back, I probably would, at the same time, it's also I knew it was such a blessing because it means I'm not going to be able to have – I'm not going to have to do it later. Right. Like I really felt that so strongly. In in that experience of integration and kind of like deconstruction of – my personality and just floating like not knowing who I am or what's real and what I want to hold on to and what I want to let go and trying to navigate like being a 20 year old and having a job in amongst all of that and nobody really understanding what's going on and me not understanding um yeah I I did feel like okay this is what I imagine like a full-on midlife like big crisis feeling like this when I picture like really tough times later in life, this is kind of what I imagined mm. and I'm having that now. Mm. So I know that I'm not going to have to do it in the same then. This is really, it's happening early and yeah, there's costs, but it is what it is. That's what I've chosen. That's what I've received. And it is a blessing because that's just what it's meant to be. Yeah. Great. Um, as you were speaking, I the perfect question came into my own head. If I could do things differently, would I? And there was a resounding yes. If I could have done my shadow work at your age, I would have put my hand up and go, yes, please. I, I, it's going to be tra- challenging, but give it to me. Because 
you know, it's not. I don't think it's helpful to have too many regrets about my life, even though I do have some. And people say they don't have no regrets, just aren't looking hard enough uh, at their shadow. And so I've made lots of mistakes and uh, along the way, and you learn from your mistakes. And it's not that you're not going to make mistakes too, but uh, if I could have done my shadow work, because I think, and I, I may not be right about this, but my perception of shadow work is it leaves me a more authentic and empowered version of myself. That's what I've gotten out of it, among other things. But if I could have been a more authentic and empowered version of myself at 22, would that would I have taken that? Yeah, looking back, I would say yeah, I would take that any day, because I, I wouldn't have I would have had there would have been a lot of unnecessary suffering that I could have avoided. Because Which I, I feel I and I can see that that's what I saw and felt like I knew that's what I was hap- experiencing. Mm. I knew that was the gift that I was receiving. I knew that I wasn't going to have to go through mm. a lot of other shit. Like I could almost mm. feel like certain karmic like timeline stuff just melting away. Wow. Like very profound. Wow. <laughs> and it just it felt so clear but and yeah, in some ways like I guess saying I would go back and I would not do it. That's definitely like it's the egoic part of me that's still forming in some ways mm. because I'm like I just want to I just want to be with all those other 23 year olds that are like just living in the city and like partying and having the best time and they don't know anything else exists yeah what a blessing that would be amazing you can go do that, that anytime you like horrible yeah you can go do that I anytime. could never do that again right <laughs> I and I'm like I wish I wanted to mm. I wish that was uh, enough for me yeah. I wish I could just work a job mm. that got me enough money to buy the clothes, mm. get the boyfriend, mm. and just have the best time. But I just... It looks like a simple formula. I and, don't and want that anymore. Right. But I wish it was enough. <laughs> Life would be simpler. Life would be super simple. Instead of working for some crazy guy trying to sell shadow work <laughs> to the world. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's definitely an all-around blessing. And mm. yeah. It couldn't have been any other way. No, because you chose it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that – so I think that we as adults create a lot of our own suffering. I think as children that's not necessarily the case. I think a lot of my suffering was handed down to me generationally through my parents and what their parents, etc. I don't, I don't play the blame game. It's more about responsibility and I wasn't responsible for a lot of what happened to me as a kid. As an adult, I'm responsible for everything. So uh, I think what shadow work – by doing shadow work and becoming more authentic and empowered, you have less suffering in your life because you make different choices. <laughs> and so I guess I'm answering my own question. I think you're, you're better off, but it's not I certainly not am better That's off. not for me to judge. Of course. That's your I de- absolutely Your decision am. to make. Yeah. Well, you're still here and you've, you could leave at any time and please don't <laughs> leave soon. <laughs> uh, and, and it's been great having you on this journey with me and – and uh, I'm like eternally grateful and this is a partnership and uh, you hold me to account in ways other people don't and in a way that's really important for me to be held to account. So, you know, if you were my apprentice of shadow work, you, you are now, you know, a master of shadow work because you are pointing out my shadow aspects to me, which is helpful. And like, uh, you know, we all have blind spots. I can't see my own. And you can see some of mine, and that's that's really helpful to me. <laughs> so we're quite the team. Mm. Yeah, we are. And I, I think going back to what you said before about how you feel like 
even though I'm a third of your age, I'm a match for you. Mm. I remember when I started working with you um, on the business, I was a bit concerned because I was like, oh no, like I kind of pedestalized Pete a little bit. This isn't, and I knew that wasn't going to work. And I, I, you'd spoken about pedestalization and how it just didn't work. And I was like, oh no, like I, I know that, I know that people aren't on pedestal. Like I, I don't want to do that, but sometimes they still just go up there and I just don't want them to be up there, but you were a little bit. And then, yeah, I don't know. Some, that, ju- that ended quite quickly. It, there wasn't any event or anything that occurred, but I just, that dynamic shifted. Great. And yeah, definitely it wouldn't work if we no. weren't a match for each other. Yeah, or if you were pedalizing, pedestalizing. Yeah. I want to unpack what pedestalizing is because mm-hmm. some of our audience might not know. But so I'll just tell a story to demonstrate it my my cousin he's probably 10 years younger than me <coughs> he came up to me this is probably 20 years ago and he said to me pete do you look down at me and i thought i was quite puzzled by the question i thought to myself do i look down at matt and i thought no i don't look down at him and then I thought, What's, what could be going on here and then i asked him i says no i don't think so do you look up to me he goes yeah i do i says well stop doing that because when you're looking up to me, it looks like I'm looking down at you. I, I said, just look at me. And he got it. And he started to look just at me. And so... That's for the story that you told was me. Was it? One okay. of the early days when I... St- maybe you could feel it on a subtle mm. level. So you're like, I'm just going to drop this story in here. Yeah. But you told me that and I was like, yeah, so true. Because <sighs> I'd just recently been through an experience with somebody else who I'd pedestalized. And it just... Right. It's a mess. Look, you asked me earlier something about my point of difference and why my clients get good results. And it's one of, this is one of the things. I don't look up to my clients or I don't look down at them. I look at them. To me, they're just another human being having an experience. I, I don't see myself as smarter, wiser, better put together or anything than them. I just see that they're dealing with what they're dealing with and I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with. And so maybe some psychologists look down at their patients and think I'm smarter than them and I can teach them and show them and um, I'm not like that. Um, and, and another point on that too, just to, to wind back a little bit, um, I believe that another thing that why my clients get good results is because they do the hard work. I can't take a lot of the credit for that. I can guide them but if they don't do the work, no results but I think that if I had to put it down to one thing, <clears throat> I would say it's the quality of the relationship that I establish with people who come to me for coaching. I see them as equals. I don't judge. I'm very non-judgmental. Uh, they can even be complete ratbags and rascals and up to all sorts of things in their life. And I still don't judge them negatively. I'm just like, well, how could they be doing things differently? You know, some of them choose to continue to be ratbags and rascals, and that's their choice. But if people are willing to wanting to become the best version of themselves i'm happy to partake in that journey with them um, but not as a guru or teacher i like the word coach why i relate to coach is because it, it keeps my ego out of the game and a little bit maybe i've still got some ego in the game <laughs> and uh a coach a, a bus is a coach isn't it and what does a bus do it, it gets you from a to b 
and that's what I see my role is, is as a coach is a person comes to me and they're at point A in their life and they want to be at point B and they're looking for uh, a, a vessel or a vehicle to get them there and I just become that vehicle. How can I help this person get from here to there? So that's all I'm really doing. I'm not teaching or, or being a guru or any of those. It's funny, I've been called – this is hilarious. You might like this one. I find it amusing. I've been called a spiritual teacher, a guru – a shaman, a medicine man. And you secretly like them a little bit. I think it's funny. I secretly do. My ego loves yeah, them. Yeah, of course. My ego loves them, but it, my, my my realist and, and my pragmatist says, well, really I'm a nurse and a coach and, and a man and a Leo with a Capricorn rising. Who secretly likes to be called a, a guru sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just on the shadow days though. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll, I'll share this this one story. Uh, so, a couple of years ago, I went back to Perth, where I'm from, and I've been here 12 years in Byron Bay, and I met a guy who I went to school with, so I hadn't seen him for 40 years. We last saw each other when we were 17, and we got together with another friend of mine who we all were in the same class, and we're having a couple of beers at the bar, and, and uh, Stephen, he said to me, I... We always saw you as the spiritual teacher in the class. <laughs> and that blew me away. I'm like, what? What do you mean by that? He goes, yeah, we would all talk amongst ourselves, but we didn't tell you, of course, but we saw you as the spiritual leader in our class. I'm like, oh, okay. And um, and I asked him, like, what? why? Like, Because I've always been interested. Well, because like, you put your hand up to, to be trained. To be the priest. Of course, makes sense. <laughs> It's interesting because I was my role uh, in 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 high school was the class clown. I, I played that role very well. I was a troublemaker, an instigator, a complete rat bag and rascal. I was constantly being drawn out in the front of the class to cop a belting from the teacher most days. Uh, and it's interesting that they had a leather belt that was made. They actually did a story about this guy on the front page of the newspaper. There was a guy, his task was to make the leather belts that the Christian brothers used to hand out their corporal punishment. And these belts were works of art. There was a half inch of leather, quarter inch of lead, half inch of leather, really heavily sewn together in this, you know, Torture, wow. torture device. And, so and it wasn't even just a normal belt. It was like a special whipping belt. Oh, yeah, it was specially made to hand out beatings oh. to, to young boys and whip them into shape. And so I was... Literally. Y- oh, yeah. And, and I've always had a bit of a rebellious kind of anti-authoritarian streak in me. And so I would just rub their nose in it, my teachers. You know, like they would call me bad and wicked and evil and all this kind of stuff. And I would just carry on like a clown and upset them. And then they'd drag me up the front and punish me in front of the class. And then I'd go back to my seat and start laughing and then the whole class would start laughing. Then they'd drag me out the front again and belt me again. And this was kind of going on. Maybe that's why they saw me as the spiritual teacher. I don't know. Wow. I'll, I'll share one more story if we've got time. Yeah. You've, I've got an audience now. So I, when I've got an audience, I just talk. Um, my father was a liquor salesman. Uh, I organised our year 10 ball. For some reason, they picked me. Oh, yeah, you've told me this. Before. Yeah. And I actually picked uh, – they were called the Farris Brothers at the time, but I booked in excess. Mm. <laughs> and at that time, they were still the Farris Brothers to play at our school ball. 
I'm a freaky judge of talent. And so it was the year 10 school ball and the Farris brothers were playing and my dad's a liquor salesman and we had a, a alcohol manufacturing business and I worked there in the school holidays. So I brought home all these miniature bottles of alcohol to take to the school ball. So it's the night of the school ball and I'm selling these little bottles of scotch and gin and whatever, whiskey, whatever, vodka. And I got caught by one of the Christian brothers and I had to go and see the headmaster on Monday morning. So I go down to the headmaster's office and he said, right, Isaiah, you've got a choice. Six on the ass with the belt. This is the special torture belt. And it was laying there on the desk. He goes, six on the ass with the belt or I call your dad and tell him that you've been selling alcohol at school. What's your choice? And it was an easy choice for me. I said, look, I'll take the six on the ass, thanks. And so he bent me over the desk. They always had to hit you on the butt. I know, that was a bit weird. Um, anyway, so I copped the six on, on, on the butt, and then he got on the phone and called my dad. <laughs> I just think that's worth I just think that's worth sharing. Yeah. I just think that's, that's worth shocking. sharing. He, he was the principal of the school, so, so the head teacher... And then you told me that you, you le- in later years, you call- tried to get in contact with I him. I did. I did. I, I got in contact with him. He was, he, was, he was in a home, a retirement home for older Christian brothers. And I tracked him down because I'd been, I'd been, uh, I, I don't mind sharing that story because there's nothing, I'm not demeaning the guy, but I had been demeaning him and talking badly about him. You know, I would say unkind things about him to whoever would listen. And I realised that I didn't want to be that guy anymore that gossiped and spoke unkindly about people. And I thought I should talk to the actual person rather than talk about the person to someone else. So I thought I need to track this guy down and and apologise for speaking evil about him behind his back. So I I managed to locate where he was staying and I called him and he he was uh, eating his dinner and he came to the phone. He goes, who's this? I says, oh, this is Pete Isaiah. I don't know if you remember me, brother. He goes, oh, Isaiah, Isaiah. I says, I remember the name. I said, yeah, I had f- there was five of us boys go through your college. He goes, oh, yes, I, says, I remember now. I said, I just want to apologise to you. He goes, apologise to me? What for? I says, I've been bad-mouthing you all around town and saying unkind things about you. And I'm just letting you know I'm not going to do that anymore. He goes, oh, um, uh, he didn't know what to say. <laughs> he was as confused as I was. And, um, but I felt that for some reason I needed to put that record straight with him. And uh, I, I never said a bad word about him since. But I'm happy to share the story about what he taught me mm. or what he was trying to teach me, which I'm still not sure. Powerful. Do you recommend that other people go so around cleaning up their mess and get things say, straight? I thought you were going to say, do you recommend people send their, their kids to Christian Brother Colleges? <laughs> um, I would probably homeschool my children. Uh, do I recommend... That people clean up their mess. Yeah, by oh. calling up any old uh. old foes. <laughs> Look, sure, why not? Like if you're up for that and you've got the appetite for it and you think it's going to do you some good and you're holding a whole... Do you feel like it made a difference for you? Yeah, I, I, I spent my 40s, when I was about 45, I spent a couple of years tr- uh, attempting to clean up um, all the mess I'd created in my lo- life and all the people I'd hurt, in all the ways that I'd shown up as a lesser version of myself. I really did want to make amends with everybody. And there's still one one person who I can think of that I haven't done that with. And I'll share this because I think, you know, it's important that sometimes I show my vulnerability. And um, this was in a, probably about year 11 at school. And so it was a Catholic all-boys school. And 
you know, I was one of the lads and there was a homophobic culture in that school. And so at that age, I was probably homophobic myself. And um, even though some of the kids in the class who were possibly gay were my friends. So it it wasn't like I was homophobic in that I wouldn't have them as a friend, but the idea of homosexuality was kind of frowned upon or there was was unspoken, but guys would joke about it and stuff like that. And through peer group pressure, you know, it's easy to buy into that stuff. And one day um, the kids decided to pick on a particular guy who was suspected may have been gay and they they kind of ganged up on him not not in a vicious way it was more in a teasing way but they were hitting him but but not hitting him they weren't punching him they were just like hitting him in a way to you know tease him and, and i joined in and you know i didn't like it I, I just did it to fit in or whatever and um and i remember in, in my mid-40s when i was trying to clean up with everybody i, thought, I need to contact this guy and apologize for being a dick and being a real jerk and joining in that, you know, bullying behaviour. And I, I, I couldn't locate him. Mm. And I asked around and nobody had knew how I could contact him. So if he's out there and he, and he knows who I'm talking about, I, I'm deeply sorry for being a jerk. Amazing. Well, I feel like that pretty much wraps it up for today. Have we covered everything? We didn't talk about um, your approach to addiction. But that could be its own podcast. Let's do a whole different podcast on that. It's a whole podcast. I think so, yeah. That's that's a rich topic. Something I'm quite passionate about. My very first job in nursing was alcohol and drug rehab and my very last job in nursing was alcohol and drug rehab. Yeah, you have uh, a lot to say on that. I've got a lot to say on it. I come from a family of addiction. I've had my own issues with addiction. I've worked in addiction. I've used every substance. Mm. Um, I've got a unique perspective and I'd, I'd love to share that sometime. So let's, why don't we book in podcast on addiction would you well, be happy maybe to you could do it with somebody else do it with someone else like a bit more relevant to addiction okay maybe you could get one of your old colleagues or something okay let's do that yeah great podcast pete thanks quinn thanks for the hard-hitting questions and for showing up as you always do we'll do another one soon all right pete isaiah is an australian trauma therapist and integration coach you can find him at isaiahcoaching.com and connect with him on instagram at isaiahcoaching This podcast was produced by Quinika Davis, edited by Beck Isaiah and Luca Young, and the score was produced by Joshua Richards.